Um, yeah, so as most of you know, Brian is not here tonight. He's doing a Passover meal in Donovan with many of the crew who's usually here. That's why it's a smaller group tonight. Um, so, um, yeah, he asked me to fill in, and I was more than happy to. So before I get started, I wanted to kind of plug his resources a bit more than he typically does. Um, he has that slide in the beginning of his videos most of the time, but he does have a Patreon at Creation Destruction. Um, if you or anyone you else know is interested in his work, um, I mean, I think we all kind of know how uh, thorough and awesome Brian is at revealing the truth of Scripture to us, but um, yeah, I would encourage you guys to go there, um, sign up for it. Every little bit helps. And if that's not an option, he does have YouTube and podcasts. I know that a lot of us in here like to listen to podcasts, and so you can catch whatever he does on there. And he's got a pretty extensive library on there also. Um, lots of good stuff that he's not preached on here at this Bible study that I think you guys would find really um, interesting. So, with that, we are going to talk about the character of God, God's attributes, God's characteristics, who he says he is, and we will be in Exodus 34 for that. So before we get going, this is kind of the roadmap of what I'm hoping to get done tonight, um, some insight into the verses that we're going to look at. Um, we'll be doing the background story of how we got to this point, um, insight into the characteristics of God, um, some structure, so kind of some nerdier stuff of how the verse is laid out, um, then how it all points to Jesus at the end. I should mention that for those of you watching on YouTube, um, because this will be on YouTube, a lot of the slides... Um, I have our screenshots from the Bible Project, and they did a series um, called the Character of God series. This is just a, a screenshot of their website. Um, so the, the art you will see on the slides is from the Bible Project. They deserve the credit for that. And if um, a lot of the information, basically all the information I got from this is from that series. They have a 12-part podcast on it. Um, I think six separate YouTube videos that kind of explore the attributes, characteristics of God. So, with that, let's get started at Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. If you're there, I will read it. It says, And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving, oh, goodness gracious, <laughs> skipped it, sorry. Uh, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, what's interesting about these two verses is that, from what I understand, 
Um, it is the most referenced scripture within scripture by all other biblical authors. All of which, except for one that I'm aware of, are in the Old Testament. Um, we know of for sure 27. There likely could be more um, based on the usage of the words. Um, we'll kind of get into that a little later. But So, you know, we think of uh, the modern Christian, you know, our, our, our most referenced verses like John 3.16. Um, so this would be uh, Israel's most referenced passage as they read throughout history. It keeps coming up over and over again. And so it's obviously quite important. Um, in these two verses, we learn, and I apologize for how small it is. I, well, we'll get there. Um, we learn that all of God's actions are an expression of these attributes. Compassion, grace, patience, loyal love, faithfulness, and being just. And through God's sovereign design, these traits help us see the meaning and importance of each one of these attributes in relationship with the others. Um, it is just two verses, but the passage has a literary design that illustrates what God values and explains many of his actions throughout the story of the Bible. In these, God reveals that his core characteristics, as we read in the beginning, are rooted in generous mercy and loyal love. And on top of that, I would add unfathomable, inconceivable, and simply awesome in the true meaning of the word, not the flippant awesome that so many of us tend to throw around not knowing the gravity that that word actually holds. And so we can come to a conclusion, and we will explore this more as we go on, that anger is not a primary attribute. It is more so a divine reaction to selfish and destructive humans, and that this anger is rooted in love. Patience, as it says, he is slow to anger or long-suffering. So you will see that God's anger and judgment are necessary and important themes within and throughout the entire Bible, the entire story. And that God's character is one of incomprehensible, generous love that created the world and longs for its restoration from a sinful humanity. I will say that <laughs> I probably chose a topic that should have been broken up into a couple months worth of teaching. There's just there's so much depth in just these two verses and the the meaning of the Hebrew words that describe anger and, and compassion or slow to anger, I'm sorry. And compassion is generous mercy and I was actually talking with Brian about this on Thursday. Um, and <sighs> I've come to realize as, as I've gotten older, and I'm, I'm sure many of you can relate, that the more you learn, the more you realize how little you truly know and how much depth, it's, I'm just referring to scripture, how much depth is in there. I, I think I saw a graph, I think you actually posted it, Noah, one time. It was for something that Green Cover was doing on their Instagram 
but it was, it was a graph um, um, representing knowledge, amount of knowledge, and, and a timeline. And, I mean, w let's just take scripture for this instance. The, 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 the amount of knowledge starts out at nothing, right? And then we come to know Jesus, and we get on fire, and we're going to church, going to Bible studies, and we're like, oh yeah, I kind of got it. And our, our knowledge is, is fairly high. And then we quickly realize how little we truly know. And then as a, it is a very rapid descent to the bottom of like, oh, I, I know absolutely nothing. And I think that's where I'm at. It's like, yes, you, you grasp um, the core tenets of who God is and what scripture is and the story that it tells and how it is all unified and points to Jesus. But... I'm at this point in the graph where it then becomes a very slow, gradual progression of knowledge. And I think I'm just beginning that very slow, gradual progression of like, wow, there's just so much depth and richness within God's story. So with that, let's continue on to the background of how we got to these attributes. So we begin... In the story of Genesis, you know, the creation of the world, everything that falls there within, we do see that in reference to this story, God decides to make the people of Israel his chosen nation, his chosen people. He promises that he will rescue the whole world, the fallen world, through this lineage. And then we see the ending of Genesis ends with Abraham's family, this lineage, living in Egypt. We then enter the book of Exodus, and I'm going to use my laser pointer here. We can see that Exodus is, can be divided into two large movements, chapter 1 through 18 being the first, 19 through 40 being the second. The first movement being the exodus of Israel from Egypt, and the second being covering the covenant at Mount Sinai. Within the first movement, again, the exodus of Israel from Egypt, we see that the Israelites have become enslaved, and God, through his servant Moses, rescues them from captivity in Egypt. In the second movement, we see God leading the Israelites to Mount Sinai, Sinai forgive me, where they reside, and here God invites the whole nation into a covenant to be shaped by his values and his character and to represent God to all other nations. And I, I realize that that is a very general, broad description of what the covenant is, but we'll go with it for tonight. Within that second movement, we can break it up into four literary units. The first of which being chapters 19 through 24, which is, it, it's, you can call it the covenant words and rules. It's where there's a ceremony where the Israelites agree to be God's partners, to enter into covenant with him. And God sets the terms of that covenant, starting with the Ten Commandments. The first two, I won't cover all of them, just the first two being that we know, do not give your allegiance to other gods and do not make any idle images. I will read that. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We will visit that again shortly. So then we can move on to the second and the fourth units, the second being the instruction for the tabernacle. Um, this just consisted of details, detailed instructions for constructing the tabernacle. Um, and this will allow God to come and dwell to tabernacle in their midst. And then the fourth unit, chapters 50, or 35 through 40, being the preparation for the presence, where God brings a detailed narrative that documents the building of the tabernacle. But right in the middle, that third unit chapters 32 through 34, and that's where we're at tonight. It encapsulates the covenant breach, the intercession from Moses, and the renewal of that immediately broken covenant. Contains the description of God's character, which we just read. Contains the golden calf incident. So we'll spend some time on that here just a bit. Um, the chaos and, and punishment and discipline that ensues. Um, and then Moses going again to receive the new tablets. So what we need to do is spend a little bit of time um, talking about this incident within chapters 32 and 34, the, the covenant breach. So we all know the story. Moses is on the mountain with God. He's receiving the covenant, um, the Ten Commandments, the laws, the tabernacle instructions, contributions, consecrations, everything that that entails. And meanwhile, while he's doing that, the chosen people are actively breaking the very first two commandments, the golden calf incident. And this is building to a statement that God is about to give about himself on Mount Sinai that we just read, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. So God is formalizing this covenant in the midst of it, they break it by crafting the golden calf and bowing down to it. Uh, give me one second here. Yes. Okay, uh, a little bit of historical reference on this golden calf incident. I found this fairly interesting. Um, apparently, and, and again, I am open to correction on anything I say. I am not an expert when it comes to um, Jewish history that is recorded outside of the Bible. In fact, my knowledge is essentially none. <laughs> uh, but we see that it can be compared to the fall um, of, of Adam and Eve, first, the first fall of mankind, Genesis 3, and also comparison to the first fall after the flood in Genesis 9, um, the cursing of Canaan when Ham looks upon his father's Noah's nakedness. Um, whatever truly happens there, I, I, I don't think we know for sure, but it is important to the history of the people of Israel. 
This is recognized in the history of Jewish, Jewish interpretation, which viewed the entire history leading up to the exile as one long punishment for the sin of the golden calf. So it's very clearly a monumentally detrimental moment for the story of Israel. Um, Judaic history records this moment and how it impacted each generation. Um, I'm probably going to mess this up big time, but the Midrash Exodus Rabbah, from what I understand to be rabbinic interpretation and discussion of the Torah and whatever that is. Um, it says there is not a generation of Israel. Yeah, there is not a generation of Israel that does not suffer at least one particle of punishment for the sin of the golden calf. Likewise, in the Babylonian Talmud, um, which I understand to be discussion or commentary on Jewish, Jewish history, law, customs, and cultures, says there is no punishment that comes upon the world that does not have at least one twenty-fourth of part of the punishment of the golden calf. So very clearly, this is, this is the, the nation of Israel's fall narrative. And obviously, this hurts and angers God. And he wants to let his wrath burn hot, have you take note of those words, burn hot against them and consume them in order to make a great nation from Moses. That's in chapter 32. But we do see Moses intercede on behalf of the guilty Israelites. And as a result, God relents from this disaster. I'd like to spend a little bit of time on these intercessions. This, again, this is probably something that you could do an entire study on in and of itself. Um, I'm, I'm just going to read what I have here. It says, Moses takes up a new role in this narrative. In addition to his roles as Israel's deliverer from sal uh, slavery and priestly representative before God, he is now also the prophetic intercessor for Israel. Moses performs five acts of intercession that correspond to, five, to the, his five acts of resistance at the burning bush in Exodus 3, where he was presented as an anti-hero who disagrees with God. But here in Exodus 32 and 30 through 34, Moses' disagreement is portrayed positively as he intercedes, not for himself, as in Exodus 3, but for the people. So you can see in Exodus 3, his dis, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. His first objection is, who am I? God, that you would choose me. Who are you? What is your name? What if they don't believe me? Please, my Lord, I'm not a man of words, and please, Lord, send someone else. So five times he objected, and here, five times, these are just the verses, we'll go on to see what those are, he intercedes on the guilty people's behalf. Um, yeah, it might be a little hard to read, so I'll just I'll, I'll go over it. The first intercession, being that up on the mountain, Moses commits his first act of intercession, saving them from the destruction and compelling God to remain faithful to his covenant promises to Abraham. That is represented in chapter 32, 7 through 14. Moses then comes down. He sees what everyone is doing. He is equally as angry. He shatters the Ten Commandments, Paul rises the calf, calls the sons of Levi to execute the idolaters among Israel. So in the next intercessions, we're going to see that Moses goes back up, back up on Mount Sinai to atone for the sins of the remaining Israelites 
followed by four more intercessions. The second being that Moses, by offering his own life for the whole nation, he then goes back down to the mountain. So he says, no, Lord, don't destroy them. If anything, destroy me. He then God says he, will, he won't accompany the people anymore. Instead, he will send a messenger, and Moses commits his then third act, saying that the people won't leave without Yahweh's presence to guide them. And again, that's in chapter 33. I know we're all familiar with the story. But then um, the fourth act being that Moses asks God, Yahweh to show his glorious presence, which will go with the people on their journey. He ascends the mountain and sees a revelation of God's goodness and the final being after the verses we just read where God reveals his glory to Moses, he asks Yahweh to go with them into the land and to continue forgiving the rebellion and their sin. God repeats the terms of the renewed covenant, and those are the five acts of intercession. I want you to keep those in mind because we will visit those again later when we point this all to Jesus. So, we see... Moses has interceded on behalf of the guilty. God relented from disaster and destruction. He pleads that, God, yes, you have to go with us as we leave. God agrees. And before we have gotten to the verses in chapter 34, Moses does something just incredible. He asks God to reveal to him his glory. I want to just read that section here quickly. I do not have it on here. Uh, and so it's chapter 33, verse 18, if you want to follow along. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. Forgive me. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God is going to reveal his glory to Moses. And I, uh, I'm not sure we can truly fathom this moment that Yahweh would agree to just give Moses a, a glimpse, just a glimpse of his glory. Um, so with that, he gives very specific instructions um, to prevent Moses' death and and I found it interesting. It also said, um, no one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So, I mean, no living thing, as far as we knew, could be within the vicinity. Otherwise, they would have been just completely <laughs> annihilated. So 
he positions Moses, he covers his face, and as God passed by, he proclaims the following. I'll, I'll read it again. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I do, you see, I have words in, in parentheses there, so merciful, it, it's depending on what translation you have, compassionate, um, abounding, can be overflowing, steadfast love is, is more often, I think, translated in loyal love, um, faithfulness, and keeping steadfast love, yes, loyal love, okay, sorry. So that brings us to these characteristics. Um, so our characteristics that we can see are compassionate and gracious. We see this by Moses interceding and asking to find grace in your eyes. He's slow to anger. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I am always just baffled by how slow to anger God truly is. He is patient with the Israelites grumbling in Exodus. Um, but he eventually gets angry when they violate the terms of the covenant. Um, fun fact, th this is not in my notes, but I do remember it. Does anybody know when the first time in recorded scripture that we see this definition of God getting angry? The, the first time that it says God is actually angry. Does anybody know? No, it's not. I believe... No, no, I, I believe it is um, with Moses at the burning bush is the first explanation of God getting angry. So, thought, just fun fact. Yeah, well, I just, uh, yeah, we'll see. He's abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. We see this as God is compelled to remain faithful to his own covenant promises to Abraham. He's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We see that Moses' last act of intercession is to ask God to forgive Israel's sins in the future. Verse 34 9. Yet, so there's balance, he won't declare innocent the guilty. We see this, uh, I think it's in 32, when God allows Moses to send the Levites to strike the 3,000 idolaters. So there's justice, there's balance. And then repays sinful generations to the third and fourth generations, but keeps loyal to thousands generations. And this part, this, this is a bit tricky to deal with, but we'll try. Um, the explanation we have is that God will deal with each generation as it deserves. Okay, here's where, where I will not try to get too in-depth because each word, there, there's just... Again, so much depth as to how it is recited throughout Scripture, instances it's used throughout Scripture, what the, the multiple different meanings of words. That's, that's another thing I was talking with Brian about, is how our, our English language is so, well, just simply adequate for, for understanding what a word means. But um, what, I, what I'm coming to see is that like these, these Hebrew words, the, the meaning carries so much more depth and richness, and it has it tells 
almost more of a, a story for each word. So I will try and just keep it surface level. Um, the Hebrew for this passion is rakum. I hope I said that right. Um, translated into meaning compassionate or compassionate one. It's often used as an emotional word used to describe God's love for his people and how his heart moves him to rescue them. Compassion is depicted as the way of a parent views a child and describes how God views his people. Um, compassion is also a motive to action. Scripture often parallels compassion with forgiveness and deliverance or rescue from suffering. Um, we also see that God's compassion is a heartfelt response to the pain of his people. Our and our compassion is a heartfelt response to having experienced the compassion of God. Um, we see that scripture expresses God's compassion as forgiveness and rescue. Um, a few verses that I have in my notes here that relate to this passion that I just wanted to read. Um, Genesis 43 verse 30 uses this same word. So this isn't, this isn't a, a, a something that God is doing, but it's the same language for compassion. It says, Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Another instance is, let's, yeah, let's do First uh, Kings 3, verse 26. This is the instance of the two women claiming the child as their own. Um, it says, then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred. It's that same word. Over her son and said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child. By no means kill him. Um, but the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. So that's how we can see it as an emotional word. Um, yeah, I've got time. I've got time. Um, some other verses. Isaiah 54, verse 8. This is used in contrast to anger. It says, in an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. Um, Psalm 78, 38 says, But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. So we can see how it is, um, it encompasses many different areas and in, in situations for the compassion of God. I do think there was another word. Eh, I'm going to run out of time, so I'm going to move on. So we then move on to grace, being gracious. And this word is hanun. Again, I hope I said that right. Yeah. That K-H being the ch. Yeah. Um, so this, it's, it's a bit complicated because it encompasses multiple different words, and I'm not even going to begin to try and explain that. There's chanun, there's chen, there's, yeah. It's, it's a bit beyond my understanding at the moment, but 
Um, I do understand how um, it's derived from this pen, the second line there, which means to show favor and generosity regardless of obligation or consideration of worth. And that's in the noun form. The verb in, yeah, anyway. Hanan um, is used to describe acts of generosity and favor. It can be used in context of someone requesting such a favor or showing favor to someone else. Um, social status is apparently crucial to the meaning of this Hanan. It always describes the favorable response or action from a superior to someone of lower social status. Um, you can think of the story of Esther. Um, Esther 4 verse 8 um, displays this. Um, and Mordecai also gave a copy to the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go to the king to request his favor to plead for him for her people. So that's that that Hanan there. Um, the, the, the noun, the hen, most often appears within the common phrase to find favor in the eyes. And perhaps there is no better instance that this takes place than within the golden calf incident that we saw. Um, Exodus 33, Moses is pleading for the people and he says, I will do this thing that you have asked because you have found favor in my eyes. That's this word for, for gracious here. So God, his grace is, is forgive me, God's, God's grace is an inextricable part of who he is. And the Bible is full of language pointing towards God's generous gifts towards those who are otherwise undeserving. Now to the complicated one, slow to anger. Um, it is derived from the Hebrew, or it is the Hebrew, erek apayim. Um, and the, this is where it gets weird, the literal meaning is long of nose. And <laughs> without getting too detailed, um, the, the term his nose burned hot is a common biblical way to describe when someone got angry. Um, yeah, it's, it's usually translated in, in our, our uh, modern day translations today as their anger burned. Um, and so God's slow to anger is, oh shoot, I should find that verse. It's describing his long nose, essentially. Um, I think there's a verse in Proverbs Well, if I find it, I will read it. But um, so some verses that encompass that 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 burning anger would be like First Samuel, uh, chapter seventeen twenty eight. Um, it said, "And Eliab's anger burned, or his nose was hot against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those those few sheep in the wilderness?'" Um, Exodus four. 14 says the anger, literally nose, of Yahweh burned against Moses. 
that's that first reference we talked about. Um, so, not going to get too far into hot long noses, but you kind of <laughs> get the. I, Can I just say that there, there is definitely the most information on this attribute. Um, I've got over 20 pages of printed out notes here, um, but I, I think we can kind of boil it down to um, God's anger is an expression of his justice and his love for the world. They go hand in hand. To be slow of anger, like I've mentioned before, I'm just bewildered at how patient God truly is. He, he gives us a lot of time to change. Um, but yet, at the same time, the hot anger of God is God handing us, humanity, Israel, over to our, the consequences of our own decisions. God's anger is a response to human evil and is based on deeper traits of compassion and loyal love. A few thoughts I had with just the misconceptions that the those who aren't intentional within, with their study of Scripture, who aren't uh, the whole Jesus is just love, only love, and nothing else but love. It's like, no, clearly not. Um, but at the same time, I don't want people to have, and I know those of us here likely don't, but that God is not going to get angry just for any reason. He is slow to anger, and he tells us here. I mean, these are the words of God himself. So just... Moving on to steadfast love, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, or loyal love as it's often um, described as. This is the Hebrew word chesed. Going to need a lozenge by the end of the night. But, uh, yeah. meaning... I'd love to hear all these words all right in a row. Yeah. Loyal love or steadfast love. And, and it, it's a bit complex because... It encapsules love and generosity and enduring commitment. Um, chesed presumes a pre-existing relationship. It describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motiv motivated by deep personal care. It's also often translated as mercy, um, loving kindness, unfailing love, Steadfast love, loyal love, as we see here. Um, a few verses that uh, capture this in the Old Testament. Psalm 36, 5 through, 6, 5 through 6. Your chesed, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountain. Your justice like the great deep. Um, Psalm 118, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His chesed endures forever. His steadfast love, His loyal love, endures forever. Um, I, I Just off the top of your head, I'm sure you guys can think of, of multiple instances throughout Scripture that define this loyal love, this steadfast love of God. It's a bit easier to, to wrap our heads around the meaning of it, for me anyway, so... For time's sake, going to move on. Um, last, last one of, of being faithful, faithfulness. Um, one moment here. This is the Hebrew word emet. And it's often translated as truth or in verb form as trust or faith. 
It involves honesty, faithfulness, reliability, trustworthiness. Um, it can carry the connotation of reliability, stability, constancy, and security. All these definitions describe the quality of covenant relationship between God and humanity. Um, for time's sake, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this one. I think the last two are fairly more easy to, to wrap our minds around. So that brings us to the structure of the verses. We can split it in half, right in half at, well, you can't really see that line. There is a line here between six and seven. And so what we have in the first half are God's core attributes. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, uh, in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in the second half, we have two, two sections within that, the keeping steadfast love for thousands, or those who love him, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We can call this a response to obedience. But, after that, we have, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this is a response to disobedience. So we see before, he is, is steadfast in love, forgiving iniquity, but that forgiveness is by no means a license to continue in sin and rebellion. God's mercy is balanced in this final section. Um, yeah, I think we can get this in here. The, the, the thousands versus the third and fourth generations. What is that all about? So from what I am to understand, the phrase third and fourth, um, some translations don't have that generation in there, so it's, it's apparently the third and fourth is a common idiom. Um, for those of you who don't know, I did not know. An idiom is a phrase or an expression that typically represents a figurative, non-literal meaning attached to a phrase. Correct. So this idiom <laughs> means whatever number. Um, I won't go there. I, I had a bookmark. But you can, you can find in Proverbs um, 30, verses 18, 20, and 29, if you want to look those up. And then in Amos, you see that idiom of, of third and fourth. Um, Proverbs 30, verses 18, 21, and 29. And then Amos 1, 3, 6, 11, and 13. Why is there this contrast of thousands, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting fathers, children, children to the third and fourth? So why is there that contrast of thousands versus well, third and fourth or whatever number? Um, the numerical disparity just drives home the basic point that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. Well, okay, so why is he forgiving thousands but visiting the iniquity on, on the third and fourth? Well, go back to those two commandments, the first two that we just read. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. 
but showing steadfast love to thousands, likely the translation is generations, of those who love me and keep my commandments. So that thousands is representing, it's clearly saying that no one is perfect. Everyone's going to mess up, but for those who are doing their best to remain obedient to God, to his law, he will forgive their iniquity. So this does bring up that question, well, what on earth? Does God punish children for their parents' sins? What, what is that visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children? And again, a lot here, and I, I can just boil it down to this. Those who repeat their ancestors' rebellions against God will have their iniquities visited again. Everyone will get what they deserve. Uh, Jeremiah 32, verses 16 and 19. I won't read the whole thing, so it's probably the latter part. Um, it says, Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of children of men, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Likewise, Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. So, uh, yes, it's, it's clear that everyone, each generation, will get what they deserve. But what this is saying is God will punish successive generations for committing the same sins they learned from their parents. They're not blameless just for having learned it from a previous generation. Everyone is accountable for their own actions. Each person, each generation. So, won't spend so too much... Yes. Yes. God does not punish a son for the murder a father committed. That son may face consequences from what the father had done and how it affects his life, but there, there is no punishment for that sin upon that son. So, kind of closing up the structure, we, we see that there is this balance with forgiveness and justice that we just kind of spent a whole lot of time on. God's forgiveness of iniquity is contrasted and balanced by God's justice towards iniquity. And right in the middle of that, um, in the middle of that, we have this center line, um, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So there's this tension and this balance. We just visited that God is this God who is slow to anger, but who will not clear the guilty. So how do we balance this? This, this God is patient. He's long-suffering. He has that long nose, right? But who will by no means clear the guilty? He is just. He is consistent. He is righteous. So this is that tension that Exodus 34, 6 and 7 invites us to explore. And that is, how does a faithful and loyal God deal with such a continually rebellious people? This is the conflict we see in the Exodus story, and it's the same one that we see throughout the entire biblical story as God works to rescue the world through his family and ultimately through Jesus, Messiah. So that brings us to, how does this all point to Jesus? I'm sure there are far more instances than I come, came up with, but here's what I have. Um, going back to the Acts of Intercession by Moses, um, that reflects our need for a messianic savior, Jesus, who gave his life as intercession for the guilty, 
us. It shows that any future covenant partnership between God and man will depend on a faithful covenant intercessor, someone who will play the role that Moses does in this passage, and that is what Jesus does. He intercedes on our behalf. Uh, kind of interesting, they both ascend into the heavens and plead on behalf of an idolatrous humanity and compels God to remain faithful Excuse me, to his eternal covenant. Romans 8, 34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7, 25, um, the latter part of the verse says, Since he always lives to make intercession for them. In 1 John 2, 1, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So in the same way that Moses interceded for the people of Israel, pleading on their behalf, Jesus does the same for us. So the attributes, compassion, Jesus is clearly Yahweh's deep compassion embodied in human form. The idea of God's compassionate care and forgiveness and rescue from suffering is seen repeatedly in the person of Jesus. He embraces the sick. He cares for the outcasts. He's deeply moved by human suffering. Um, the ultimate expression of compassion being that Jesus taking humanity's suffering on himself unto death, self-sacrifice, to rescue us and bring us near to God. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, And he himself bore our sins, in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And that's just just a taste of, of the compassion of Jesus. Grace, again, clearly, Jesus is Yahweh's gracious favor in person form. Jesus is the ultimate gift of God's generous love, given without, remember, regard or status or worth that we talked about in that definition of grace. Um, God's grace is given to those unworthy of the gift of Jesus' salvation, and instead we all know that we deserve God's justice. Um, Ephesians 2, 4-10 through 10 says, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Um, kind of skip around through the verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. Slow to anger, again a bit more complex, but Jesus' display of this attribute is seen in his warnings of coming judgment. He, give me a second here. He warns that neglecting his kingdom ethic would lead to ruin. Uh, Matthew 7 24 through 27 is an instance of that. I won't read the whole thing, but um, latter part. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who has built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Um, Jesus also sends out his disciples with good news and with clear, clear warnings of coming judgment. Um, in Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, we see God's anger at evil 
and his love for people working together to provide forgiveness and life for humanity lost in self-ruin. Lastly, in the Bible, we see when God responds to anger with justice, it's because he is good. And he is extremely patient, working out his plan to restore people to his love through his son, Jesus. Just got a few more. Steadfast love. That's a bit small to read. I should have done that in two slides. Um, We do see that God's ultimate act of loyal love, his chesed, remember, is um, and his loyalty to his... Hmm, I wrote that wrong. Loyalty to his covenants made to Abraham, Noah, and David are embodied in Jesus. Um, Jesus came to receive and to show God's steadfast loyal love and restore the partnership between God and humanity. Hmm, I'm just trying to think if I need to read this. It said that those who walked with Jesus encountered the God of Israel who was full of love and faithfulness. And so Jesus is clearly the ultimate example of loyal, loving human in his death, life, and resurrection. He opened up a new future for all of us and all creation. And he did this because it's who he is, generous, loving, and eternally loyal to his promises. I'm going to move on. Last one, faithful. This part I thought was just, was just awesome. The very opening of the New Testament, Matthew, it immediately points to God's faithfulness. The very first thing. This is the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'm sure to be a Jew at that time and to read that is to, to well, not reading it at that time, but after it was written, to know that, yes, this was Jesus. This is God's faithfulness come to redeem us. Um, Romans 15, 8 through 9 says, Jesus came on behalf of God's faithfulness. It's a paraphrase of that verse. He came to embody God's faithfulness, and he is the promised king to come, and the one through whom all people will be saved. God is faithful to his promise through Jesus. He's been faithful all along. Um, yeah, it's going to bring us to my favorite part. I said that this is the most referenced verse throughout Scripture, and it was all in the Old Testament except for one verse or one passage, and this is that one passage. Um, I do want to, we will read this last part, but I wanted to read um, the first verses there in John because there's a really cool parallel with with Moses Um, so I'm just going to read verses 1 through 18 and then we'll we'll wrap up here it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, 
was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And then this is the sighting of Exodus 34, 6-7. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I've said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Before we get into verses 14 through 18, I want... I just think it's really interesting. When it talks about John came as a witness to bear witness about the light. I can't help think about how Moses, when he came down and his face shone, radiating the glory of God, how those two parallel each other. I just thought it was really cool. But the main section, verses 14 through 18, we have these, these areas that we just read in, in Exodus 34. He dwelt among us. He came and he tabernacled among us. Exodus 25, that's that same word. It says, we have seen his glory. In Exodus 33, we, God tells Moses, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. But we have seen his glory. He's full of grace and truth. Just talked about how he is abundant, steadfast love and faithfulness and grace and truth. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's saying the giving of the law and the coming of Jesus Christ both mark decisive events in the history of salvation. The law being that God graciously revealed his character and his righteous requirements. And then Jesus, marking the final definitive revelation of God's grace and truth. He was the fulfillment of the law. Matthew 5.17 says, I think I've got, there's a, there's a lot that go over it. Matthew 5.17, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. John 10.30 says, I am the Father are one. Um, Colossians 2 verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. John 14.10, Do you not believe that I am and the Father are, I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. I could go on. No one has ever seen God. Again, that's the same thing we just saw in Exodus 33. You cannot see my face. And in this part, I just, I just, I just love this. 
the only God that is, um, it depends on the translation, and, and I'm not going to get into that. It's a bit complicated, but um, some say the only Son, so I, I do think this is pointing to Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him God known. So the same God in Exodus 34, that is Yahweh. It's who he says he is. And this Jesus that we're being introduced here in John is Jesus, Yeshua, making known Yahweh in person form. It's awesome. It's just awesome. So John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would also have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. I was thinking what it would have been like to have walked with Jesus and to have known that reality, to hear him say those words that if you know who Yahweh is, you've seen him in me. It's just awesome. So in conclusion, our God who is compassionate, who is gracious and slow to anger, abounding in loyal love, steadfast love and faithfulness and forgiveness and justice in all things balanced, is the same God who reveals his glory to Moses on Sinai and proclaims his magnificent characteristics is fully embodied in Jesus. These most referenced parts that we talked about in Scripture are commonly God's gracious and compassionate character and his loyal love, which I think we can say points to the recognition of our fallen nature, of our need for grace, our need for compassion, and the, the, the biblical authors clearly grasped that. Lastly, these are precisely the character traits of God that compel him to keep his covenant relationship with a faithless people who continually violate their covenant with him. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. I'll close this in prayer and then we can fellowship. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being a God who is all these things we just learned about, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love, faithful, God who forgives and who is just. And God, we see these attributes shown in your Son, Jesus. And that we, we know we are supposed to be imitators of Christ. And so God, let us learn to become more compassionate, to become more gracious, to be slow to anger, mm. abounding in loyal, steadfast love to those around us, regardless of who they are, what they can do for us. Be faithful in all our relationships and faithful to you to offer forgiveness because you offered it to us freely. We're so undeserving. Thank you for the gift you have given us 
your scriptures, especially this story, this amazing story in Exodus where you do the most amazing thing and proclaim who you are to your servant Moses. Thank you that we could learn about it and hopefully gain a deeper grasp of who you truly are. We love you, Jesus. We pray that we glorify you in all we say and do. Amen.